Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to Unboxy World. In today's episode, we're interviewing Stephen Schwartz, who is a scientist, a futurist, award-winning author, a columnist for the journal Explore, and an editor of the publication SchwartzReport.net. So Stephen is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and a Biolt Foundation fellow who has spent 40 years as an experimentalist researching the nature of consciousness. And to add to the resume, he has written many articles for magazines such as the Washington Post and New York Times, and lots of other magazines. So it is no doubt that he has a very impressive and long resume, and the list really goes on. And I found him through a very interesting TEDx talk called The Hidden Path to Creativity. And in it, he was presenting his research on how geniuses across the world and history, how they have come up with their genius and creative ideas. And in today's episode, we're covering a few interesting topics. We start off by talking about how you can unlock the hidden path to creativity, what the most common blockers to creativity is. And we also cover the topic of social transformation. And lastly, we talk about how small choices, so-called quotidian choices every day, can create a movement of change and change society for the better. So I look forward to sharing this episode with you all today. Let's get to it. So hello, Stephen Schwartz. Welcome to Unboxy World. My pleasure to be with you. So um, yes, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you today. And just to start off, I just wanted to get a little bit personal on the topic of creativity. So what does creativity mean to you? Well, creativity is the ability to um, conceptualize something that um, you don't know intellectually there is a process for doing it. If you look at the world's people who are known as the great creative geniuses, you see very quickly that there emerges a pattern of what they do and how they do it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they, they, it varies from person to person, but it is a movement of consciousness into a conception that has not previously been understood or existed. Hmm. And um, yeah, 
And you've done a TEDx talk um, about this. So you did a text called the, the Hidden Path to Creativity. So um, do you want to tell the listeners a bit more about that? that uh, well, what I, is, yeah. yeah, what I did was um, examine what the people themselves said was happening. So I looked at scientists, uh, composers, artists, uh, physicians. And what I discovered in doing this research, I looked at hundreds of these stories, not that someone else told, but that these people told about themselves. And what emerged was a six step process that seems to be common to all of them, which I thought was quite unusual. Mm -hmm. And, and what in, in, in short, what were those six steps? Like, what is that? How can you? Well, the first step yeah. is you have to have intellectual excellence, whether it's in physics or sculpture, individuals of genius are all masters of their field. They're thinking visionaries, intellectually on the leading edge, and their analytical prowess gives them the power to define the problem to be addressed. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're the smartest people. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, the late Nobel laureate Richard Feynman over dinner one night told me a story of how he ha had hoped to become a leading physicist when he was uh, just an undergraduate. And he went in to look at his college file. He sort of snuck into the, uh, the administration office and he discovered his IQ was only 124, according to the, to the uh, record that was on file. And he realized that while 124 is superior, less than 5% of the population, it was hardly an indicator of how you were going to, how he might become an internationally recognized and historically significant physicist. And yet he did. So creativity is more than functioning uh, just with the uh, highest IQ. And, and um, interestingly enough, uh, Dr. Marvin Friedman at San Francisco State College in California did a study and what he discovered was that the thing that made the creative successes stand out was that they were the most troublesome because they asked the most probing questions <laughs> that challenged received wisdom about something. So it's and like Edwin, a kid, Edwin, right? <laughs> yeah, Edwin yeah. Land, who invented the Polaroid process, at, wrote and said at the end of his career, he re-examined the work of hundreds of scientists and engineers who had worked for the Polaroid Corporation. And he discovered that um, individuals who had the ability to free themselves from conventional thinking, the, the thinking that was sort of the common view of friends and associates, tended to be the ones who were able to come up with new ideas that, that were represented as he called it a fresh, clean look at old, old knowledge. So this like, it's a kind of iconic, uh, iconoclastic factor and of course, it's part of our folklore. You know, we talk about the eccentric scientist and 
and we all have stereotypes about that. But the idea is that in order to, to do really creative thinking, you have to master what is known. Mm. And um, then you also, as a second step, you have to have a kind of deep knowing that a solution exists. You know, Einstein said, for instance, I feel certain I'm right, but I don't know the reason. So you have to, first of all, you have intellectual excellence. You command your field, whatever it is. If you're a painter, you have to be a good painter. If you're a musician, mm -hmm. you have to be a good musician. And you have to have a sense that there's a deep knowing that uh, there is, that you can get to the right answer. And the other that thing that stood out for me, which was very particular, because in the research that I do in consciousness, I see exactly the same thing. And that was uh, the third step is a strategy of inward looking. Um, it could be meditation. It could be uh, Leonardo da Vinci would stare at a wall and look at the patterns on it. Um, I remember once when I was working for the National Geographic, I went down to Cape Canaveral in the early days of the space program. And um, I was going down a hallway and in a room there were a whole bunch of, of scientists and engineers from the NASA space program, and they were playing darts. Mm -hmm. And later that evening I went out to dinner with one of them and and I said to him, you know, you're just kind of killing time. And he said, oh, no, the darts, that's our secret weapon. When we get stuck and no, there's no intellectual solution, we start playing darts. And, and then we begin to talk about it. And then we have trivial things. And then somebody will make a, well, you know, if we tried this, and somebody else will say, well, yes, if we tried that. And, and that's how we solve the problem. So a technique for giving up conventional thinking, maybe that would be the way to put it. Mm. And it, the fourth step is you have to be, you have to surrender to, for a breakthrough to occur, you have to, you have to kind of give up your convictions about how something ought to be uh, and just give yourself over to that process. Um, Einstein again said that the basic theory of relativity came to him one day after he had been sick. He was out idling away some time in a canoe and he suddenly saw relativity. Nikola Tesla was walking across Central Park in New York and he had a kind of vision, he says, of the electric motor. And he could see it quite clearly and he went back to his his laboratory and he said to his engineers, build me this. He did not prototype it or we'll try this, just build this. And they did and they plugged it in and it worked. And that's how the electric motor got, it, uh, mm -hmm. got invented. Mm -hmm. So uh, Poincaré, the French mathematician says that on two occasions, he was just walking across the street when the breakthrough that he was searching for came out of the air. 
Nietzsche says, uh, also spake Zarathustra came to him while he was walking through the woods beside Lake Silvaplana. And he just saw the story in a moment, although it took him months to write it. Mm. So I looked at hundreds of these things. Uh, uh, Jonas Salk, I asked him where the polio vaccine came from. He said a dream. Mm. Um, uh, of course, uh, Kolka's dream of the benzene ring, that sort of thing. Descartes has three dreams in Ulm, Germany in 1619 that allow him to see the mathematics for which he became historically famous. So when you look at these people who are the standout creative people in history, what you find is that they all follow in their own way. I mean, they do it differently, but they, they all follow this same kind of six step process. And it has to do with being able to give over and allow yourself to open to something that may contradict received knowledge. And it is a, in, in another area of my research in, involving non-local consciousness, it's a sort of inward knowingness. And the fifth step that comes in this process is these people have a kind of moment of illumination um uh, they uh, thomas kuhn who created the idea of the paradigm and wrote a book called the structure of scientific revolutions described himself he did a lot of research and and he described this as a sort of the scales fall from your eyes and suddenly you can see the whole thing as i said uh, tesla sort of saw the whole thing like a hologram hanging in his mind and could understand it. Arthur Kessler is another one. In fact, he coined the term holons to deal with this inpouring of comprehension. So then you have this moment of illumination and you see what other people have not seen. And then you have the sixth and final step, which is explication and verification. That is, you have to be able to show people how to do it so that they can also get it and um and you have to be able to verify it by it being replicated oh yeah but those six steps record this kind of natural rhythm which as i said presents the, the, the research about how these individuals no matter what field they're working in i mean brahms beethoven uh, mozart all describe sitting there and suddenly they could hear the music in their mind and uh, I mean, Brahms says, I hear the music and I, the chords, the, the everything, and I just write it down. Yeah. What, what happens like in your brains when that happens? Is it, is it just a, um, a result of all the previous steps or is it something well, that not, happens? It, it isn't altogether clear. We don't know hmm. exactly, you know, there are a lot of theories. Hmm. I am an experimentalist, not a theoretician. So everything I know about this is based on objectively measurable um, data. But there is some evidence, for instance, that the anterior superior temporal gyrus becomes activated. There are theories that it has to do with quantum mechanics. There's a new field of quantum biology that addresses some of these issues. But the truth is we don't 
know exactly how the non-local becomes local? So the big questions, the big mystery questions for me, and I think for many in science, is what is information and what is consciousness? And I don't know the answer to either one of them, nor does anybody else I know. But what does seem to happen is that, that um, there is a kind of non-local information architecture. And I think this is what, um, uh, what uh, the ancient Asian religions call uh, the Akashic records. But I, I mean, that's just my supposition, but it seems clear that there are informational structures. You know, reality, Einstein called reality an optical delusion. Yeah. And said that, that these things just appeared in people's consciousness. So when you say non-local consciousness for the, re for the listeners, uh, could it also be explained as the subconscious or the your when your intuition which would be the, the intuition would be the non-local consciousness when the, you get that aha moment it is brought into the local consciousness could that also be accurately well subconscious is a psychological or psychiatric ah, okay. word okay uh, yeah. what i would say is if you look at the evidence again i i just deal with evidence i don't deal with theories or speculations we know for instance from the near-death experience research. And there are now literally millions of people around the world who have had near-death experiences. Uh, in the United States alone, there are about 13 million of them. And these people all tell basically the same kind of story. That is, they are physically dead. That is, their hearts quit beating, their brains are not operating. And yet, they seem capable of observing and, and hearing things. The estimate is that about 13 million people in the United States, I don't know how many in Sweden, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds of thousands have had these experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, if we go back to uh, the creativity then, um, and look at our own blockers that keep us from, from, from unlocking our true potential, would that be this access to intuition or non-local consciousness? Or what is uh, the biggest blockers that? Well, the biggest from... blocker is mm -hmm. conventional thinking. I mean, it's very hard to get people to give up conventional thinking. You know, at the moment, science is dominated mostly, not entirely, but mostly, by materialism, physicalism, which argues that consciousness is purely a product of, of uh, physiology. It's, it's, it's uh, entirely contained within your brain, dead meat, no consciousness. And that in spite of the fact that there are literally thousands and thousands of experiments. There are at least six research protocols right now that have odds of greater than one in a billion that they could be by chance. And yet materialists literally cannot bring themselves to look at that data. Mm. They just say what's impossible. 
Mm. It can't possibly exist. And yet you say, well, here's the data, here's the research, here are all the controls, blah, 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 all that. How do you explain it? Well, I can't, I don't, it can't exist. I, literally, I mean, <laughs> I've actually had people like that say to me, it's impossible, it can't exist. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is you've got can't possibly exist. <laughs> That's the hardest part. Creativity requires that you give up conventional thinking. So surrendering to the fact that you can be wrong. Surrendering to the fact that you can be wrong and that the general assumptions about something are not mm. correct. That is right. Mm. So if you, so you, I assume that you can have a very high IQ and become very good at solving the problems that you are optimizing for. But if you really want to unlock then the true creativity, then you need to, yeah. So you realize that you can't be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You need to be willing to surrender conventional thinking. You need mm. to have some technique for inward looking, mm. whether it's meditation. I mean, there's a reason why, for instance, um, meditation is taught in martial art dojos in Japan, Tibetan lamasaries, uh, Hindu uh, temples. Why do they all teach? meditation. I mean, they do it slightly differently, but it's all basically the same thing. Why do they do that? And the answer is because over centuries of observation, they have discovered that people who gain this ability for inward lookingness, intentioned uh, non-local awareness, come up with things that other people don't. Hmm. Whether it's spiritual insights or whether it's mathematical problems or or whether it's Brahms writing a symphony hmm. yeah so um and to another topic is that so you have been part of uh, many social transformations across the years which one is the uh, civil rights uh, in the 1960s and um, I mean, we're we're facing a big transformation right now, both COVID and climate change. Um, so going back to this, then, what do you see that we, um, as humanity, but also as a single person, what can we do um, to master this change um, and transform it to hopefully a better future? Well. Uh, again, this is another area of my research. I've been looking at social transformation and how individuals in small groups can change the course of history. And we have this again, I'm an experimentalist. This is all based on research. I mean, to give you an example of, of a really clear example of this, uh, Gandhi, just before he was assassinated, was interviewed by the Times of India. A reporter came up to where he was at his uh, ashram. I mean, you could just imagine him sitting there with his little dhoti, this little sort of garment mm -hmm. he's got, and his little spinning wheel and everything. And uh, the reporter said, my editor asked me to come up here to ask you just one question. And Gandhi said, well, what's the question? And the reporter said, how did you force the British to give up their most prized colonial possession and give India independence without a war. 
How did you do that? You don't have any money. You don't have an official position. You don't have any particular authority. How did you do this? And Gandhi's answer is the answer to this question. And that was, he said, it's not what we did that mattered, although it mattered. It was not what we said that mattered, although that mattered too. It was the nature of our character, what I would call beingness. That's my word, not Gandhi's. It was the nature of our character that led the British to choose to leave India. Now you notice the verb, force choose. If you look at how social transformations positively occur, I'm, my interest in this is fostering well-being. I believe that out of the experimental work that I've done, that it's clear all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. The Abrahamic idea that we live sort of independent of the rest of the earth and have no connection really with it, it's a kind of exploitable bank account left to us by a rich uncle or whatever, it's just wrong. In fact, we live in a matrix of consciousness. We are just one part of it. All of it is interconnected and interdependent. And it's linked at the non-local consciousness level. So if you think about it from that point of view, you realize how change can be affected. It's really quite simple. You have to get people to decide. And in fact, let me say this to your audience. If you want to change the world in a positive way, what you want to do is every day you make dozens of little choices, where you choose to eat, the toothpaste you buy, the toilet paper you buy, where you buy your gas, all, all those little bitty choices that you don't even think about. You do it, well, that's the toothpaste my mother used and told me to use or whatever. Instead of doing all that unconsciously, you do it consciously. And you make the decision that every day I have these little choices to make, and I, from now on, commit myself that I will always choose of the options that are available to me, the one that, as I understand it, is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being in everything. Hmm. How I treat people, what I buy, the companies I buy things from, I will become conscious of all these choices. And I will always choose of the options available, the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. Mm -hmm. And I will tell 10 of my friends that I'm doing this as a discipline, and I will ask them to join me in doing it. Perhaps that um, power is uh, contagious as well. So actually those small choices, and I think that you're referring to those as quotidian choices, right? Quotidian choices, yeah. yes. Little minor things. Now, how can that possibly make any difference? And the answer is, we know from research, research that was, for instance, done at Van Rensselaer Polytech, and I described this in my book, The Eight Laws of Change, they discovered that when 10% of any cohort changes its 
consciousness about something that the whole cohort has to accommodate. And I'll give you some examples. When I was a boy and you went over to somebody's house, and I'm sure it was as true in Stockholm as it was in, in Virginia, you went over to somebody's house at those days, in those days, and there was an ashtray on the coffee table and a pack of cigarettes and one of those lighters your mother told you not to fool with. You never see that anymore. Why? Because enough information came out that individuals made a choice and said, I'm not going to do that. I'll give you another one. If you go to the Google word search, you know, Google keeps track of the words that people use to search and it's available. What you discover is that about, oh, it's now about five years ago, four and a half, five years ago. The, there was a change between um, gay or queer was a derogative version to LGBT and then LGBTQ. Why did that change? Did no politician came out and argued for it? The president or the prime minister didn't get on television and tell everybody to do it. What happened was individuals heard it in conversation or reading or looking at the internet or something. And they thought, yes, that makes better sense. So I'll do that. Hmm. And you can see this same thing happening. Um, there is a huge hassle in the United States right now. We have we are a very, very, a country in very difficult straits. Yeah. There, as we are moving toward gender equality, there is enormous resistance, particularly from men and particularly white men to allowing full gender equality. They want male dominance. They want women to be subordinate. They want them to do what they're supposed to be doing, which in their view is having children and taking care of the men. The fact that there is this struggle going on is because women have fed up with it and that they're not, that doesn't work anymore. And so we are going through a cultural shift in which gender equality, sexual orientation, all of that is changing in ways that would hardly be imagined a hundred years ago. And why is it happening? It's not happening because they're passing laws. It's happening because ordinary people who have no particular money or political position or official authority or anything else, just choose to do it. And as I said, when 10% of any cohort chooses to make a different choice, a different consciousness, the culture has to change. So only 10%, that's quite um, optimistic. <laughs> well, if, again, if you look at it's it, positive, you will find yeah. that 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 works out. So mm -hmm. it, no matter what country you're in, right? Now look at climate change mm -hmm. as an example. Yeah. 15 years ago, nobody knew what climate change was, thought about it, gave it you know any attention at all. The first time I encountered climate change and was really exposed to research about it 
was in 1991. And I read an article in the American Scientist, a paper published about ice coring, which made the point that the atmosphere had been different than it was today, and that it was changing as a result of increasing carbon. At the time, I talked to people about it, and they all, oh, you know, who knows, who cares? No, that doesn't mean anything. We'll done. Now you talk to people about climate change and you begin to see as the sea rises, as the temperature increases, people are paying attention. Consciousness is changing. And so this issue, I think, of how to create change is first of all, make your first priority fostering well-being as a culture and as an individual. And when enough individuals do that, and I would say to you that the Nordic countries are doing much better than the Western European, uh, you know, certainly better than the United States. I mean, if you look at almost any social outcome measure you want, um, longevity, infant mortality, maternal mortality, education, incarceration, uh, heart disease, cancer rates, uh, literacy. I mean, pick any social outcome data you want. You can look at the outcome data by countries and you can see which countries are being successful. It has nothing to do with military power. You can see which countries as countries and the people in those countries are doing better. and. Again and again and again, it's the Nordic countries, New Zealand, Switzerland, and Holland, the Netherlands. Okay. So I that is promising to hear that. Um, so I mean, it starts with wellness, making good decisions, and if ten percent um, start doing those choices, culture has changed. That's very promising to hear that it's. Um, um, I'm wondering then. Is there any data on, for example, if I today start, okay, I am um, going to buy um, this climate-friendly milk, let's say, at the store today. <laughs> um, and I tell my friends that, and the reason why I'm doing that. Is there data on how many people around you you affect with doing better choices? Well, if you do, well, you just do the math, Maria. <laughs> if you tell 10 people that you're going to yeah. do this and invite them to join you, and yeah. you ask them to tell 10 people, you do the math. Yeah. I mean, it gets to be a very large number very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, you know, you tell 10, they tell 10, each tell 10, then they, each of those tell 10. I mean, you're up in the tens of thousands very quickly. Mm. And does it work? Absolutely, it works. Mm. You can see, for instance, I'll give you an example. I just read this the other day. Jello, you have Jello in Sweden. I, I've been to Sweden, but I haven't been there enough. To, but you know what Jello we, is? We, yeah, yeah, we have it, but not That's as common right. as US. <laughs> well, people, people, younger people, the Gen Xers, the Gen Zers, they stopped eating Jello, and it's it's going, it's it, you can hardly anybody eats it, and the company that makes it is talking about quitting making it. 
uh, Budweiser beer, which was the beer in the United States, is no longer, it's now the fourth beer. So you look at these kinds of things and you see mark people who are into marketing and who follow this very closely, they learn quite quickly. I mean, for instance, if you look at a television advertising in the United States right now, again, I, I, I'm not where you are, so I don't know, but in the United States, what you see in advertising is mixed race couples, gay, LGBTQ couples in the advertising. Why? Because the marketers who are trying to sell something have realized that if you want to get them to people to buy it, you have to speak to them as they are. And so you see a complete change. It's, it's very notable. If you look at television series, you know, I got interested in this. And so I, I started looking at, which I didn't, uh, started looking at television series on cable networks, Netflix, Hulu, Showtime, Stars. I don't know what you have, but whatever the equivalent is. And what I discovered was, for instance, in the United States, there are 15 shows now in which consciousness is a primary dramatic part of the show. It's, uh, you know, time travelers, stranger things, um, sense8. Consciousness is a factor in the show. I also realized the number of shows in which um, gay or lesbian couples were prominent figures, or even transsexual. There are four shows which have transsexual characters. Why is that? And the answer, of course, is because that's where the market is. And so people who are in the marketing business who pay close attention to this kind of thing, they understand very clearly that if you want to change culture, you need to get a small group of people that grow into a larger group of people to change their consciousness about something. And so if we want to create a world in which well-being at every level from the individual to the, the insects, the fish, the coral reefs, the birds, everything is, is better, then we need to make choices that foster well-being in our daily local lives. And so from that perspective, just the people that are listening to your program every, mm -hmm. I don't know how often you, you come off, but every people, all the people that are listening to your program, if they would make the commitment to these quotidian choices that foster well-being could change the whole nature of Sweden. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, um, that's powerful to, 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 to hear. To hear. Um, uh, the change that you can make with small things. Um, and it's backed by research. Yeah. It's not yeah. speculation. Mm -hmm. This is not some philosophical speculation that I'm, I'm talking about. This is, you can measure this. You can measure social outcome data. And you see that where the choices are different, where fostering well-being becomes important, you always get better results. It's always they are, it's more productive, easier to implement, 
more efficient, cheaper, much cheaper, <laughs> nicer to live under. The, the, the Gandhi way, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, last is on future gazing then. So um, if we, uh, in a utopian world now with all the challenges that the world is facing right now, uh, if we successfully manage to, to, to with all the continued choices and, and um, creativity that we can um, hopefully try to uh, unlock, <laughs> um, how do you see that um, the world will transform into the future if we master um, to tackle all the cha changes that or the, the challenges that we need to to solve oh well that that's that would take me so long we'd have to do a whole other show <laughs> okay but <laughs> okay. for instance um industrial chemical monoculture agriculture will disappear long shipping for vegetables and things will disappear they'll get grown more locally <clears throat> um there will be no carbon energy. Energy will be uh, non-polluting. Uh, you will have proper child care. You'll have proper elder care. You'll have proper uh, uh, support because it's people will recognize that children are the future. And therefore, it is very important that they get the right start. Yeah. You will see healthcare transformed so that healthcare, particularly again in the United States, we don't have a healthcare system. You have a healthcare system. We don't. We yeah. have an illness profit system. The whole thing is geared to profit. And so instead of that, you will have a system that is geared to healthcare. I mean, it's not complicated and it isn't complicated to do either. You know, you can, all of this philosophical, political debate and all that, I, I, none of, I have an anthropological interest in it because it's kind of tribal. And so it's, you know, it has an anthropological component. But the reality is, it's quite simple. If everybody chooses to foster well being, that's what will happen. Hmm. And it will take all kinds of forms, some we can imagine and some that we can't. So I leave it with your listeners and your viewers. Yeah. It's up to them. Yeah. Are they prepared to do this? Thank you so much. And if not now, then when? And yeah. if not them, then who? Thank you so much for, for um, these um, positive, optimistic um, words <laughs> to end on the show. <laughs> My pleasure. You take care. Thank you so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure having you here. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.